Well, good evening, folks. If you'll take your copy of the scriptures and open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. The best that I can remember, I have never seen a boxing movie that I don't like. I'm not interested in boxing in the real world at all, really. But I like boxing movies. I like, I like them all. It's a good thing there's like 13 Rockies. Rocky, Cinderella Man, all of them, they're, they're, I, I enjoy them. But I've noticed that good fights have to be set up. They have to be staged. That's why there's all this work, I think, because I don't know much about boxing, promoting and set, you know, setting up the match. That's why they, they, they take these pictures before and the fighters, lack, you know, they're all mad at each other weeks before and all this sort of thing. They have to develop the good story about the fight. And I think that's why I like movies so much because they, you know, they can really take care of the, the story part of it. But then the weight comes for the good fight. And some fights are lame, right? They, they, they might be like a split decision or they have to, you know, you watch it and you can't really tell who's winning or they're not, they don't fight very well or there's, you know, lack of engagement or whatever it is. But, but all fighters, all fans of boxing, they want to see a knockout, right? A KO. And historically, there have been a couple fights that have been so fast that if you blink you would miss them, right? If you are the kind of person that is late to an event, you would pay all this money, go to the boxing match, and you would miss the whole event, right? You'd come back with your popcorn, and it's all over. In 1982, Mike Tyson was an amateur boxer, and he boxed a guy named Dan Kozad, and he knocked him out in six seconds. So the bell rang, and fight's over. <laughs> You can go watch it on YouTube, right? Mike Tyson was so dominant that, it, I mean, it wasn't even a fight. Like, the poor guy, I, I think he, like, threw a punch, but he didn't really, didn't really get into it. Well, the fight between David and Goliath, for all of its fame, didn't even last six seconds, right? If you picture David and Goliath in a boxing ring, you hear the bell, it's over. It's over. Right? Goliath didn't even get close enough for that giant sword of his or that massive spear to even get close enough to David before David had flung the famous stone that sunk deep through the skin and the bone of the giant's forehead into his frontal lobe and he fell and died. Thud. It wasn't even a fight. Not worth the price of admission. But we know from the prominence of this story in the Bible that this was not just any fight. This was not just a story to tell to your kids. We'll talk tonight about some of the details we tend to skip. Right? This is not just a story that is written in business books and used on you know, cable TV. Right? This is a fight of incredible symbolic and theological significance. And tonight, after two weeks in this chapter, which has taken us a month, we're going to finally come to the victory part, right? The decisive victory of this anointed shepherd boy over the giant serpent. Now, if you're here tonight, this is your first night here during the David and Goliath section, you may feel a little bit lost in some of these details. 
Uh, all this stuff is recorded, so you can go listen online and catch up and see where we got here. But let me try to give you a brief review. If I say things that don't seem to sit with you, well, you need to go hear the you know, explanation uh, from past weeks. But let me give you a brief highlight. You remember that we've said that in this chapter, this long chapter, 58 verses, and only two of them are given to the actual fight, 58 verses, we see some of the core themes, perhaps all of the core themes of Samuel wrapped up in this one chapter. And we've talked about how the author uses literary devices to make his point. The key one that he uses in this chapter is the literary device of making a contrast, right? Comparing one figure to another. The author contrasts Saul and David, and then he turns around and contrasts David and Goliath. We've also talked some about how the author uses lots of patterns. We call them types, Which means that the author is picking up on some patterns that were established by earlier authors in the Bible. And actually other authors pick up on them later in the Bible. And they carry a theme, a a type throughout the, the Bible. And we'll see tonight that many of these themes are continued all the way up into the New Testament. Some, some I would argue, all the way to Revelation, right? Revelation ends with a giant serpent being slain, right? But they go all the way through the New Testament, but ultimately we see them culminating in Christ. But either way, these patterns, which we'll talk about, they help us understand and interpret this passage because the patterns are clearly put there by the authors for a reason, For example, we picked up on the pattern. One of the patterns was the fact that when Israel stood on the edge of the promised land, just like they are in this passage, you got to read the whole, we're not going to read the whole chapter tonight, but uh, just like in this passage, they're standing on the edge of the promised land, afraid of giants. Well, we thought, hey, wait a minute, we've heard that before. Because back in Numbers, we read about how the 12 spies went into the land of Canaan and they came out and what did they say? We can't go in. They're giants there. And that was such a significant sin, such a significant failure to trust the Lord that God sent them into the wilderness for how long? 40 years to wander until all of them died. Trusting God is serious work, right? God sent them into the wilderness till they all died because they didn't trust that God would do what he says he'll do and be who he says he'll be and that he is significant for their difficulties. So they're afraid of giants once again. Well, here we are facing another giant who taunts the armies of Israel for how long? Not 40 years, but 40 days and 40 nights. We've also seen a few clues in the text that this giant is not just any normal giant, but that he is a particularly evil variety of giants. He is the epitome of all giants. He is a serpent-like giant. The text says that he's covered in scales, all right, when it's talking about his armor. He's covered in scales, and like the serpent, he blatantly defies the living God. Well, Israel's king is supposed to be the giant slayer, but he's not. He is a king like the nations. He's supposed to go out and fight for them, but he's a coward. So God raises up David, an unlikely deliverer, a savior to rescue Israel. 
David has really just come onto the scene for us. He is the newly anointed, back in chapter 16, the newly anointed, spirit-filled king of Israel who is the king in waiting. And David is nothing like the king of the nations. Notably, he is short. Well, he's not short. He's not tall. He is the youngest of his brothers. So insignificant that they forgot that he was a brother, right? They left him in the field taking care of the livestock. And if you only look at the outward appearances, David is a nobody, an unexperienced shepherd boy. But as we saw last time, we see in this text that God is actively demolishing the tall power structures of the world so that he can make way for his kingdom and his king. God's not impressed by humanity. He's making a way for his kingdom. So like David, we need eyes of faith to see beyond what Saul and Goliath and Eliab and all his brothers could see and to remember that God works on behalf of the people who make themselves small And to submit to his rule and trust the Lord to deliver. Well, tonight we're going to see these lessons continued and expanded. And tonight we're going to look even beyond what happened that day in the Valley of Allah to the battle that was done at Calvary. Where another serpent fell. Where the power of another serpent was destroyed. And so that brings us to the main idea for our text this evening, and I'll put it simply like this. Those who trust in the Lord will be saved by his anointed one. Those who trust in the Lord will be saved by his anointed one. So let's turn now to the text. 1 Samuel 17, I'll back up a hair and we'll start in verse 41. Man, I'm not even going to get through the end of the chapter. Let's go through 54. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you would come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, so that all the earth may know There is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. And he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank deep into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and he took his sword and he drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shariam as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine, and he brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Let's pray one more time. Father, we ask that you would accomplish what only you can accomplish. So, Father, would you make progress in our hearts for your glory? So, for that to happen, Lord, I pray that my words would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten. Let no sinner stand in the way of the work you intend to do. Let your word remain, and let my words blow away like leaves. We pray that you would accomplish this and produce much fruit in our lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. There's so much that I'd like to cover tonight. And we're going to be weaving in and out of the text from all different angles. So I want to give you kind of the three big kind of categories that maybe will be guideposts for you and help you kind of know where we are um, as we're moving in and out. The first, the three points are this. Yahweh is the true God. Jesus is the true champion. And Jesus is the true Adam. Yahweh is God. Jesus is champion. And Jesus is the true Adam. First, Yahweh is the true God. We've seen in recent weeks that David is cut from a different cloth than the rest of the Israelites, especially Saul. Remember we first met Saul? He was hiding with his Vera Baton, what's it called? Vera Bradley. He was hiding with his Vera Bradley luggage, all right? He was in the luggage stuff. That's where he was, not where a king would be on his inauguration day. And that's where he is now, figuratively. While all of Israel is cowering behind the lines, eating cheese, David is the only one who trusts in the name of the Lord. The text makes this abundantly clear with statements like in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, whom you have defiled. In this chapter, we hear David publicly proclaiming again and again his trust in the Lord. He proclaims it to the men of Israel, verse 26. He proclaims it to Saul, verse 36. And now he proclaims it to Goliath in verse 46. And this confuses everyone around him. David is not tall like Saul and like Goliath. He's not experienced like the soldiers, like his brothers Eliab and others. And he doesn't even have armor. But that's no matter. David's confidence is not in those things. David has eyes of faith to see what the rest of the world cannot see. And so even now, years and years before we hear about Paul's teaching on grace, salvation by grace through faith, we see David as the paradigm of faith. He trusts that the Lord is able and willing to save him. My friends, that is what you need to know God. To trust that the Lord is willing and able to save you. Goliath has blasphemed God. And so David has come forward to inform Goliath that blasphemers must die. 
This is actually the penalty. Leviticus chapter 24 verse 16 says that the penalty for blasphemy is stoning. Well, we could say that fundamentally the penalty has not changed. You should know, my friends, that all who deny Yahweh, all who deny that Yahweh is the Lord and the King of hosts and the Lord of heaven and the universe, they will, they will all die. By stone, by fire, by whatever. If you deny the Lord, you will perish. But in this text, David is the agent of divine justice. And so he steps forward to stone Goliath, the blasphemer. We should take careful notice of how David approaches this battle. We've already seen and discussed that David walks into this battle with none of the advantages of human strength. None of the advantages of technology and armor and all these sorts of things. And the text goes even further to make this clear. Again, in verse 50, the author says, hey, just in case you forgot, David did not have a sword, right? Which is unthinkable in battle. And then again in verse 46, we read about David who explains why he doesn't need a sword. Because the Lord doesn't deliver with swords and spears. And David trusts in the Lord to deliver Goliath into his hand. Now we can already apply this to our spiritual lives. As you and I do battle against the great powers of sin and death and all the spiritual forces of evil that we face whether they be outside us in the world around us, whether they be at work in our home, in your marriage, with your children, and even the forces of evil that we all see in our own heart. We must not battle as if they're flesh and blood. We must recognize that we cannot rely on, spirit, on physical strength. On human ingenuity. Spiritual battles cannot be fought with weapons of flesh and blood. We must run to the God who does not deliver with swords and spears and psychology and self-help and a little, little bit of discipline and a little pride. We must turn to him. Many of us are fighting spiritual battles with the armor of Saul. And yet we are called, as we heard already, to take up the whole armor of God. For only then will you be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Church, I fear that we may know so little of God's power in our lives because we're trusting in the sword of Saul instead of the sword of the Spirit. That's why we see little success. That's why you're not making progress in your sin addictions and your struggles and your habits. Because you're trusting in the sword of Saul instead of the sword of the Spirit. The Lord does not save with sword or spear. Yahweh alone is the true God and we should trust him as such. And since Yahweh alone is the true God, we should also proclaim him as such. One of the great themes that's running throughout this chapter that I wish we could develop a little more is this evangelistic theme. David was an evangelist. All throughout the chapter, again and again, David is announcing that he's acting, according to verse 46, for evangelism purposes. So that all of the earth may know what? That there is a God. That Yahweh is God and he is in Israel. Goliath didn't know it. Israel had forgotten it, and Saul had forgotten it. 
So here's David proclaiming to everyone, there is a God and he rules on the earth. David's zeal for God's glory gave him a natural zeal to make God known. You can tell how much, how much you love the glory of God by how much you talk about the glory of God. And by how much you try to display the glory of God in your actions. David knew the glory of God. And he recognized if Yahweh is the one true God, then his people should not only act accordingly, but we should also speak accordingly. And in David's actions, he was simultaneously calling Israel away from acting like the nations, from being infatuated with human power and tall people and weapons and castles and fortresses and idols. And at the same time, he was calling the nations away from their idolatry to worship the one true God. David was concerned about the glory of God because he knew that Yahweh is the one true God. And he wanted all the world to know that. That God is a God who keeps his promises. That God is a God who brings down the tall and raises up the humble. That he is a God who acts in ways that totally baffle the system of the world. Which means that he's going to do some things you don't understand. There are going to be things that he does in your life. There are going to be things in the Bible. There's going to be things that unfold in history that you don't understand. Because we are of the world. We are being renewed by his spirit. God is working to upend all human systems so that he can make a way for his kingdom and his king. But I'd also like to draw your attention to the detached head of Goliath. In verse 54, this is a verse that is often left out of the story when it's relayed to our children. Verse 54 tells us that after chasing down the Philistines and after the Israelites are chasing them, David returns and he takes the armor of Goliath to his tent and that he took the severed head of Goliath to Jerusalem. Just picture the man after God's own heart king of Israel holding a giant's severed head, probably pulling it by the hair, dragging it through the dirt on the way to Jerusalem. Just picture this trophy of war bumping along the ground as he walks, perhaps with blood still dripping from its arteries. This is a scene of victory. This is a scene of victory. Goliath's severed head is Yahweh's bloody trophy of superiority. There is no other God but Yahweh. When you defy him, you will lose your head. Goliath is the clear reminder of that. He will have his way. He will keep his promises. And you will not defy him and live. Thankfully... Though David takes Goliath's armor back to his tent, he does something else with the severed head. He takes it to Jerusalem. Now, we may be accustomed to, we hear about Jerusalem a lot, right? Sunday school, whereas you're reading the Bible, you hear about it all the time. It can be difficult to keep up with like what's going on in Jerusalem at at this time. And and so we need to realize that at this point, Jerusalem was a significant and major fortress city, but it wasn't in the hands of Israel. It was not possessed by the Israelites. 
Even though they had already possessed the promised land, if you remember, Israel's not very good at obeying God. And so God had given the responsibility, or Joshua had, had given the tribes of Benjamin and Judah the responsibility to conquer Jerusalem. It was right in between them. They were the closest. But they hadn't gotten around to it yet. So Jerusalem is still occupied by the enemies of Israel, by the Canaanites. So here we see David dragging the bloody, oversized, giant head of Goliath into, into enemy territory, into the city of David. The unconventional, surprising victory of Yahweh is spreading. It's going out to the Gentiles, gradually making its way to Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God. And of course, we know that one day, right outside the gates of Jerusalem, at the place of the skull, there will be another great battle that is fought. Another giant that is beheaded. Once again, that shepherd victor, he will not have a sword in his hand. But I suppose I might be getting a little ahead of myself. But our first point so far is that Yahweh is the true God. And I trust it has been made clear to you. And you cannot defy him and keep your head. But I'd like to zoom out a little bit further. I want to start to consider some of the ways that the victory of the son of David looks ahead to Jesus, the son of David. And that brings us to our second point, that Jesus is the true champion. You could say it like this, Jesus is the true Israel, or Jesus is the true David. But we'll stick with Jesus is the true champion. Hopefully by now, especially if you've been here for three weeks, I have convinced you that David's victory was no ordinary victory. The story is not included in the Bible because it's some great military story of valor. It's not, the case. it's not the point, right? David was not just an ordinary guy in Israel who had a lot of courage. He had been especially anointed, chapter 16, by God to lead and deliver his people. He had been filled with the Spirit of God, chapter 16 again, for such a task. And so in verse 45, when David comes and he says to Goliath, I come to you in the name of the Lord, he's referring back to that anointing. We could say that this brings us to the gospel of David. The gospel of David. David's message of salvation was not simply the good news that those who trust in the Lord will be saved from danger. That is good news, and that is true. It is just not complete. David helps us see further than that. David's gospel is that those who trust in the Lord will be saved by the anointed one also known as the Messiah, right? That's what anointed one means. David was just anointed. David is the anointed one, but we learn from David that those who trust in the Lord will be saved by God's king. It's clear that Israel needs a savior, right? They need a helper. They were weak. They were sinful. They did not trust in Yahweh. And so David functions as a type or a, we could even say a prototype of Savior, a type of Messiah. But of course, David was not the true Messiah. 
He's just paving the way. He's just wetting your appetite, getting you ready for the one true, the greater Messiah, the greater David, Jesus of Nazareth. So let's examine some of those pathways now. We see that Jesus is our true champion. In verses 4 and 23, Goliath is called a champion. Now often we think of a champion as the team who emerges from the kickball league with the fewest amount of losses or, or whatever, right? We think of the one, it's the one who emerges victoriously, but that word in Hebrew is, is much bigger, it's, it's, and it's much more specific. Here, the word that's translated champion, it literally means the man in between. The man in between. And, and this makes sense if you think about the scene that's going on here in the Valley of Allah, right? Goliath is portrayed as the quintessential Philistine. He is their representative. He is their champion. He is the very embodiment of the true Philistine man. Verse 8, he says this. Am I not, the text says A, it could also be the. Am I not the Philistine? Am I not the guy? The one who represents all of Philista? The common Philistine soldier was not in this scenario going to have to fight. Because Goliath was willing to fight for them. He was their champion. Well, Israel did not have a champion. We did not have a representative. Saul was no good. He's like organizing his baggage. Israel had asked for a king, a king like the nations to be their champion, and they found a tall, good-looking guy, but he was not a good Israelite. Actually, he was the essence of an Israelite, a bad one, right? He was a failed Israelite, but there was no one better to take his place. Until David, the young shepherd boy, he becomes Israel's champion. He becomes their representative. David becomes the man in between. He is the true Israelite man who stepped in and won a victory, not just for himself, but for all of Israel. Do you see how David, the champion, foreshadows our champion? Jesus, the champion? David stood between Goliath and Israel and he came out victorious. Just as Jesus stood between the just wrath of God and came out victorious. The key thing to notice here is that Israel did not have to fight. Isn't that great? Israel did not have to fight. The champion does the fighting. David did the fighting, and David won the victory, and guess who got the blessing? Israel. He did it for Israel, on behalf of Israel. David is Israel's champion. There's a very real sense where, and this is true for the king, but it's also true for a champion, but you could say that he is Israel. We see this all throughout the Bible when it's talking about kings. A king was considered to be the nation, the essence of the nation. And David is Israel. He is Israel's victory. Did you notice what happens after David's victory? What does Israel get to do? Look at verse 53. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. (laughs) Do you see how this foreshadows and anticipates the work of Christ? On the cross, Jesus, our champion, stood in our place. He stood between us and the serpent and the wrath of God. He took the full force of sin on our behalf. 
As it says in the great song, Jesus interposed himself between us and the judgment of God. And just like David, God anointed Jesus to be the man in between, to kill death and then to give us the victory. Just think of it. David does all the work. Israel gets all the goodies. Israel gets all the plunder, right? All they had to do was go and plunder the camp. That's all they had to do, right? David does the work. Israel plunders the camp. Church, this is the message of the gospel. Jesus does the work and you get the glory. If you are found in Christ, if Christ is your champion, your representative, he does the work, he takes the suffering, you get the glory. You share it with him. Jesus does the fighting, we do the resting. He fights the battle, we sit back and laugh as the enemy falls. So even in the face of great evil, church, we don't need to be afraid. No matter what form of evil you see in your life, we do not need to be afraid because Jesus fights on our behalf. Don't you see how David is looking ahead to Jesus? Just like David, Jesus was a nobody from nowhere. Unattractive. The Bible literally says he was unattractive. So if you see a picture of Jesus that's beautiful, take it down. It's not biblical. I didn't mean to say that. I did mean to say that. All right. Jesus was an unattractive nobody from nowhere. He was a king totally unlike the nations. And just like David, Jesus did not come with a sword. He did not come with the power of the Roman Empire. He rode a donkey. He rode a donkey. David conquered with no armor and a sling. Jesus conquered by hanging naked on a cross. Both David and Jesus are kings that are totally unlike the kings of the nations. Come to a third category and we see that Jesus is the true Adam. You could say, you could also say in this text that David or even and then Jesus is the true Adam. He is as God intends for humanity to be. When God created Adam and placed him in the garden, if you come to our Sunday night study, we've been talking about this some, but when God created Adam and placed him in the garden, he did it with the purpose of reflecting God. Adam and Eve were to reflect God. They were to show the whole world what God was like and the way they related to God, the way they related to each other, and the way they took care of the world, right? They failed, big time. Adam and Eve failed. Cain failed. Noah failed, Abraham failed, Jacob, also known as Israel, failed, then Moses failed, and then Israel failed. David didn't fail yet. David is obedient where Israel failed. While Israel and her king are afraid of giants, David obeyed. He trusted in the Lord. He kept the law. In the same way, Jesus, our champion, obeyed where we failed. He lived the life that we have failed to live. He always trusted in God. And this is why God said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. David's victory in the valley of Allah is a miniature victory of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And there's more parallels. So let me try to show you some of this more specifically. 
There's some really clear parallels between David's life and the early ministry of Jesus. But I want you to see them. So take your Bible and turn to the New Testament, Mark chapter 1. We need to see these together. Okay, Mark chapter 1, in verses 9 through 11, you can read the heading in your Bible, probably says something like the baptism of Jesus, right? That's the context here. Jesus is baptized, and what happens? The Spirit descends on him like a dove. Well, if you remember 1 Samuel 16, what just happened to David? He's selected and appointed by God, and the Spirit of God is given to David. All right, back to Jesus. Right after Jesus is anointed, he's driven by this spirit into the wilderness where he's tempted for how long? 40 days by the serpent, right? By Satan. And so to David, so too David was also driven right after being anointed, right after being given the spirit, driven to the edge of the wilderness where he too faced a time of temptation by a serpent for 40 days and 40 nights. I can't help but note some of the interesting connections that begin here. Look down in verse 13 of Mark chapter 1. The text says that Jesus was with the wild animals. If you remember, the story of David and Goliath highlights a lot of wild animals. You remember that? First of all, David's battle resume is about how good he is at killing bears and lions, right? I grabbed it by the mane and killed it, right? He's, he's talking about how he defeated the bear and the lion. And then David makes it clear that he's going to feed the body of the Philistines to the wild animals, okay? You see the connection? Not convinced? That's okay. Neither was I at first. But let's zoom back a little bit. Let's think back. Let's go all the way back to Eden. Remember... When God created man and placed him in a garden, he was to have dominion over the animals, right? Have dominion over the animals. But sure enough, there's that darn serpent, right? And after facing temptation from the serpent in the garden, what do Adam and Eve do? They fail. They fail and they're driven into the wilderness. They failed to show mastery over the beast of the earth and the temptation from the serpent, Leading God to promise that great promise in Genesis 3.15. That through the seed of the woman, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Right? You got to get to know Genesis 3.15. The first instance of the gospel in the Bible. Furthermore, when God made his covenant with Noah, right? We, we talk about how big the ark is and we, we, we go there and we think about it and we get amazed by it, but we may miss the details of the actual covenant, right? Part of the detail of the covenant with Noah was that God was going to make the animals afraid of man. Have you ever noticed that? It's in Genesis 9. The beasts were going to fear man. Okay, so if you put all this together, what do you have? How does this connect? In 1 Samuel, we have David taming wild beasts and then resisting the temptation of the serpent-like giant right before he cut his head off. Then in Mark, we also see Jesus with the wild beast resisting, resisting the temptation of the serpent before he issues the fatal head wound to the serpent on the cross. Do you see it? Now notice this. After David who was full of the Spirit, defeated Goliath, what did he do? He freed Israel 
He freed Israel and they plundered the camp of the Philistines. Flip over to Luke chapter 4. Okay, so after David's victory, he frees the Philistines, right? He frees them from the Philistine rule. He frees them to enjoy all the plunder of the Philistines. Luke chapter 4, what's going on here? Again, it's the temptation of Jesus. The same, the same, it's the same parallel passage. Look here, look here in Luke chapter 4. Luke is sure to highlight down in verse 16 and following that right after Jesus comes triumphantly out of the wilderness in the spirit, he does so, out of the wilderness, he does it in the spirit, right? Verse 16, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And what did Jesus do? He too declares freedom for all of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Do you see all these connections? Jesus is the better Israel and Jesus is the better Adam. Jesus obeyed where Adam failed. Jesus obeyed where Israel failed. Jesus conquered where Adam and Israel were defeated. And Jesus died so that Adam and Israel could live. Just as all sinned in Adam, remember Adam is our representative. He's the representative for all humanity. Well, Jesus obeyed and rose again as the representative for all humanity. You remember in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So what do we do with this? Is this just neat kind of Bible stuff? Is this just interesting so you can kind of, you know, wow your friends next time you're doing Bible trivia? You think we're making this up? You think these are accidents? Or is God progressively unfolding a plan of redemption that will blow the minds of those who see it? We should marvel at the infinite beauty of the scriptures and at the incredible providence of God. We should seek to know our Bibles and understand this unfolding of revelation. But more than those things, we must worship Christ. Yes, the story of David and Goliath, it is a call for us to imitate David's faith. We should be like David in imitating his faith, trusting in the Lord, humbling himself, evangelizing, proclaiming Yahweh is the true God, trusting in him to do great things. But how much more is this story a call to trust Christ? We have the full scope of God's revelation in his word. And just like we said at the beginning, just like we said a month ago, in this story, you and I are not the hero. We are not David. Don't identify with David in this story. We're Israel. We're Saul. We're Eliab. Some of us might even be Goliath. And we all need a Savior. We are the ones who need saving, we are the ones who have failed. And we are the ones who need a champion. 
And there is a champion in Israel, the King, the Son of God. I'd like to invite you to move into a time of prayer and encourage you just to pause and to reflect on what we've seen tonight in God's Word.